So hello, my name is Toby Mendelssohn and welcome again to Contemporary Spiritual Life by Arate House. So far in this series, we've more or less explored contemporary spiritual practice in terms of various kinds of Western attempts at the Eastern contemplative arts. So for example, in the last episode, we explored yoga with Peter Ujvari. But our guest today, Matthew Sharp, offers something of a distinct approach to what is a similar theme, an approach which is thoroughly grounded in Western thinking and practice. So Matthew Sharp is an associate professor of philosophy here at Deakin and heir to a seriously diverse set of publications, ranging from Lacanian psychoanalysis to the political philosophies of Strauss and Schmidt to the classical world of Socrates and Stoicism. And in fact, it is this classical world that we will enter today as we explore the renaissance of Stoicism and ancient contemplative practices here in the West. So Matthew, we welcome you to the show and we're very, very grateful for the time you've given us. We know that time for the academic is the most precious commodity of all. So welcome aboard and thank, thank you, you very much. My pleasure. I think maybe the first thing I'd like to ask you is a little bit about your philosophical journey which took you from contemporary European political and psychoanalytic thinking, thinkers like Zizek and Lacan, back to the contemplative ethics and practices of the Greek and Roman Stoics. So I suppose what I'm interested in is the degree to which this goes beyond a purely professional or intellectual pursuit of knowledge and into something which is more personal, something like a way of transforming yourself okay well um as you as you say i i did a lot of work um as a graduate student and uh, in my early professional life on psychoanalytic theory and people sometimes say how did you get from contemporary psychoanalytic theory back to an interest in classical ethics and in particular to um, some approaches to classical ethics which highlight what we might call their contemplative dimension or their interest in transforming the life of um, individuals. Uh, and my answer always is that in some ways the, um, the journey is not a long one or hasn't been a long one because psychoanalysis is probably the most famous 20th century discipline and form of um, therapeutic psychology that emerged obviously from Freud and which tries to bring together a sophisticated sort of theoretical understandings of the human mind and then later of society um, with a set of transformative practices obviously conducted in the context of a tete-a-tete um, between the analyst and the patient or analysand. So in other words, there is a, a very strong practical element to psychoanalysis, which is explicitly aimed at transforming the subjectivity of the person that enters into it. And that's the link, would you say? Yeah, I mean, I think that has been the link. Um, there, was, there was a few steps along the way. You mentioned Leo Strauss and, um, and some work I did um, in the 2000s. Um, Leo Strauss is a, is a thinker who advocates a return to a form of classical political philosophy, which is highly controversial. Um, but nevertheless, encountering his work and the controversy surrounding it led me to reread um, a lot of ancient philosophy, particularly a lot of Plato, um, after sort of 2003, 2004. And I became progressively more sceptical and unsatisfied with Strauss and his students' approach to things uh, for various reasons. But they'd given me the impetus to return to classical thought, which increasingly since about 2007, 2008, um, more and more of what I've been doing um, has been engaging with um, ancient thought, Plato, Aristotle, and then, as you say, in particular, the, the Roman Stoics. And is there a strong political element to this in the same way that there would be... I mean, you, you mentioned that it was political philosophy that drew you into an engagement with the ancients. Uh, were you looking for a kind of politics there, or is it more on that kind of more personal level? Well, 
the, the debates around Strauss concern the influence that he's had in, in America on what's called neoconservatism. And it's very much the political um, dimension of classical philosophy that he, he's interested in. And at that time, I was very, very engaged with political debates. I mean, I, I kind of go in and out of that um, engagement. Um, I'm, I'm more concerned about politics now than I have been for, for probably 10 years. So I'm back doing a bit more political work. Um, but I came out of that experience of looking at um, of people like Strauss, but also looking now back to Lacan and Zizek, I became increasingly concerned that, you know, that to, to quote an ancient philosopher, that much learning does not make for wisdom. Um, I became very sceptical about what the actual link in terms of intellectual practices was between these immensely erudite, clever men who write books and the kinds of ethical lives that they were or were not living. Um, and that was also a Socratic thing for me. I asked myself, what was I getting out of this? Um, a lot of knowledge um, and there's a joy in that. But I, I also didn't f find that that knowledge was necessarily making me happier or more content for various reasons. Um, and you can see that very clearly if you look at a, th a thinker like Socrates, that for the Greeks, the link between the pursuit of philosophy, the love of wisdom, and the pursuit of happiness, or eudaimonia, and there are various other Greek words that are used, um, is, is quite direct. And that, that, that always has sort of echoed with me and, and, and attracted me, that idea that somehow there's some connection between the search for knowledge or rather the search for wisdom and, and, and ethics. And that word wisdom, which has really dropped out of philosophy today as an academic practice, it's an embarrassment. And why it's an embarrassment, I, I think, is because there's an inescapably ethical dimension that's there in all but perhaps Aristotle's use of the term in the Greek philosophers. Fear is used. It's, it's, it's used to not simply describe polymathia, a lot of learning, but something else. There's an X factor there. So you're saying something about contemporary philosophy and maybe extend that out to theory in the social sciences and humanities more generally that it's lost touch with that ancient sense of an ethical kind of core grounded in Sophia and become something more kind of technocratic and you might say there's kind of an addiction to knowledge and theory yeah, at the expense yeah. of you know being a good human being yeah well I mean to pursue knowledge even in the context of the academic institution is to, is to do something and you're not doing other things it's to have made a choice and it's to undertake certain practices but when you start to think about it in that way you say okay so what is it to be an academic what do I do less and less unfortunately it involves direct teaching and if you're successful less and less again because then you get um, you become a more purely research academic which is where I'm at um, and then what are you doing you're you're you're, you're reading um, and you're writing books and you may go to conferences which are really set up as a way of allowing people to stage their drafts for written publications. So you've got a tacit set of assumptions that knowledge is embodied in things that are like books or now internetized articles. Which are um, commodifiable. Which, commodified. which, which again... And which um, are really the capital too of the academic, right? That you need that list behind you in order to secure your next funding arrangements. That's, that's absolutely spot on. So what's missing there? Is it something like philosophy or reasoning which is more dialogical or um, more open-ended? Well, Socrates never wrote a thing, or he might have helped Euripides write some plays. And, and Socrates is not an outlier in the ancient philosophical um, cosmos in that regard. Epictetus, the famous Roman Stoic, didn't write anything. We have what are called his discourses in his handbook because one of his students um, took down notes and crafted those notes into those books. Um, and Epictetus, alongside Stoic, uh, sorry, alongside Socrates, is not necessarily an exception. Um, a lot of 
the people who we know were philosophers and who were considered philosophers, their activity seems to have been one, pedagogical, they were teachers, and two, um, it was associated with a certain form of life, even with a certain form of dress and with a certain way of wearing your facial hair. Really? so Do you know exactly a, how you're supposed to wear your facial hair? You're supposed to have a beard. Um, Could I fit the bill? Yeah, you do. Um, I've got a little beard. I don't think mine counts. Somebody was asking me whether mine counts. <laughs> but Epictetus, well, I think it was you maybe, um, we were discussing this anyway. Epictetus um, has, a, has, a, has a discussion, the discourses. If somebody said to you, you have to chop off your beard, would you do it? And it was a really serious kind of identity issue for, for um, Epictetus because the beard was one of the signs of being a philosopher. Um, so the philosopher was a recognised cultural type. Uh, he wasn't just another professional. Um, and, you know, there are all sorts of questions about, okay, so how were they funded and stuff, which, which may or may not concern us. Um, but it was a certain persona. It, one was a philosopher, and that meant that you did certain things in certain ways and you appeared in certain ways. And there was, again, that ethical dimension that's there in the word Sophia. You were supposed to say certain kinds of, for example, paradoxical things. So the lives of the philosophers of Diogenes Laertius is, is the lives and sayings of the, of the philosophers. And a lot of these sayings pack a paradoxical punch. They're, they're surprising. Um, and that was one of the marks of, of, of a philosopher was to, for example, in the case of Diogenes, the famous cynic, um, to, to say things that upset convention, um, to be provocative, to get people to, to think differently. Um, so rather than laying down schematic or systematic answers to particular questions, it's more to disrupt uh, conventions of the time or to play some kind of role of getting people to think for themselves? In the case of the cynics, that was very, very central to the philosophical persona. There are dogmatic ancient schools, and by dogmatic, I mean that in a neutral sense of, let's say, systematic. So the Stoics have a systematic logic, systematic physics, and a systematic ethics. Aristotle is the closest to the modern model of the philosopher because he has a systematic series of books, inverted commas, which are actually based on, again, on, on a spoken delivery on his lectures and notes compiled from his lectures, covering theoretical philosophy, practical philosophy, and the logical bases of philosophy. So it's not that there wasn't, in different schools, a dimension of systematising rational thought, it's just that in some other schools, the sceptics and the cynics in particular, there was um, this other side which was to do with challenging, upsetting, and this looks back to, back to Socrates, confronting people. And if you like, the public face of philosophy, you know, the, what was called the protreptic face of philosophy, which is how does philosophy engage with the outside world, that involved this dimension of playful self-presentation and of differentiating a philosophical understanding from an ordinary understanding of the world. Um, then when you got into schools, in the case of the Stoics and the Epicureans, you would be, and the Aristotelians, you would, you would get the more systematic um, philosophical discourse. Um, but one of the things that I'm interested in is, is, is the proliferation of different philosophical genres of writing in the ancient world which have disappeared. There's a heck of a lot of dialogues of course um, but there's also kind of prayers, there's kinds of hymns, there's kinds of poems, there's consolations, there's collections of paradoxical sayings, there's epitomes or summaries of systems, there are all these different genres um, that are no longer recognised. Now what we're left with is the monograph, or the six to 12,000 word article. And it's hard, I believe, when you understand that, not to think of that as a narrowing and as a, as a kind of cultural closing in. This takes us nicely as a segue onto the 20th century French philosopher, Pierre Adot, 
who um, you have translated, is that correct? And certainly written on? Uh, on in, in the process of, of, of translating with a, with a colleague, yep. So here it's very central in rescuing that more ancient sense of philosophia from its more modern institutional or technocratic forms. And I suppose I've already touched on this, but could you explain a little about the distinction he makes between philosophical discourse and philosophy per se? And does philosophical discourse imply, as well, you kind of answer this in a way, but does it imply more than simply speaking and writing? Does it entail techniques or arts connected with quote-unquote self-transformation? Okay, so, so for Hado, um, most definitely it, it, it involves both philosophical discourse, the use of language to um, convey understandings of the world, but also to teach, to instruct, um, and in that sense at least, to, to transform students by giving them new knowledge. But he often um, makes this comment that ancient philosophy sought not simply to inform but to form. And by that distinction between inform and form, what you're forming is, is a student as a person. Um, so ancient philosophy for Hado involved philosophical discourse what we do, what we produce, some of which was written, but he stresses that ancient Greek and Roman culture was still predominantly an oral culture. Um, and the forms of philosophical writing that are produced, he thinks, often echo their spoken origins or reflect that. And then there was philosophy um, in, a, in a wider sense, which involved um, a changed mode of perception, a changed mode of even feeling, emoting, um, a, f a form of internalised discourse, if you like. So, okay, so let's say I, I become convinced that the Stoic theoretical system, I've taken a look at it, and I think that it makes a lot of sense. I'm not yet, according to Hutto, meaningfully a Stoic. I'm just somebody who knows about Stoic philosophical discourse. How do you get from that to to being a Stoic? Well, you have to internalise that discourse and put it to the test of... Um, of of life, um, so a lot of uh, Stoic ethics, in particular, but also parts of the physics and the and the, the logic, have implications, existential implications. Um, if you believe that those propositions, those ideas, are true, then it should affect how you think about your own life and how you behave. Um, the Stoic is somebody who, having accepted the discourse is true, and then says, "Okay, well, what am I going to do about it?" Um, and this doing involves um, forms of codified practices. Um, so if I, could just, I don't want to get too sidetracked yeah. here, but it sounds like there is a kind of phenomenolo phenomenology or existentialism at play there in the sense that something like the understanding or in Heideggerian language the force structure is at play in shaping the way we actually encounter the world. And so by engaging so with ancient Stoic thinking, that's actually changing our force structure in some way and changing the very way we apprehend reality. Is something like that going on in Ado, or is how would you explain that from his point of view? I think that's true, uh, absolutely. And, and I think the, the reference to existentialism and even to Heidegger is not um, without force. Um, Hutto was roughly a contemporary of, of, of existentialism in, in France, although his background is, is quite different. Um, and he's attracted in existentialism to its emphasis on experience and the way that understanding permeates our everyday life. And he thinks that philosophy should indeed change and, and aimed to change the basic way that people understand and go about their everyday life. Um, and the way that it, it did this, the ancients, as I say, is... is um, through advocacy of what Hutto calls spiritual practices. Um, and he's using a term there from, from the Christian tradition and he gets in trouble with people who accuse him of projecting Christian idea back onto the Greeks. But he finds in the ancient texts, in parts of those ancient texts which we might be tempted to consider as inessential, uh, real evidence for the prescription as in prescribing, like a doctor prescribes, of certain types of practice which are there to try to 
enable you to deeply internalise the philosophical discourse and to put the implications of that discourse into practice on a daily basis. It seems like he's offering something then quite a step more than, say, Heidegger or the existentialists might offer, because it's not just about transforming your consciousness or your force structure, but actually your modes of embodiment and behaviour in terms of practice. So it's sort of one step further along, isn't it? I think that's right. I, I, you don't really have a parallel in, in, in those thinkers to this kind of um, recommendation or what Hutto finds in the ancient texts in terms of these kinds of recommendations. So Marcus Aurelius, for example, um, the great Stoic emperor of the second century, it leaves us these meditations and, and, and the second book begins by saying, every morning before you get out of bed, um, remember that you are going to meet vexatious people, greedy people, anxious people, fearful people, um, angry people, um, unattractive people. Um, so every day before you start, remember that you're going to do that. But also remember that you share this earth with them, they have the same fundamental nature with you, and that therefore you should learn to be forbearing to these people rather than, um, first of all, surprised that they keep on showing up and threatened by the fact that they do. So this is a clear passage where it's a prescriptive um, kind of um, piece of language use. He's prescribing something. He's clearly enjoining it upon himself. And it's, it's, it speaks to a daily regimen. And it, it moves, therefore, beyond... That's the construction of a, of a theoretical set of ideas. There's theoretical ideas in the background, in particular when Marcus says, okay, so you need to learn to treat them with forbearance. And you get some stoic theory about we, we have a, the same nature and we share the same world and so on and so forth. But the theory is being applied and it's being enjoined, if you like, exhorted. And this is not an unusual passage in the Roman Stoics. There's lots of recommendations like this um, for different kinds of practices you can undertake. And you don't really get that in Sartre or Heidegger or um, Merleau-Ponty or, or these kinds of... You might infer it from what they're saying, perhaps, but it's not there directly. Perhaps a little bit in Levinas, but I'm not that familiar with him. But um, maybe you could just stay on Aurelius for a moment. And I suppose getting down to the nitty-gritty of what kind of practices might he actually prescribe in order to achieve that. So it's all very well to, to lay down in a text, this is how you ought to go through the day. Yeah. But let's say you do come up with some aversion within yourself, or indifference, or anger, or something of that nature. By what means does he recommend, or do other Stoics recommend, that you can practice in order to actually change, or prevent perhaps the arising of those emotions. So Aurelius is a student of Epictetus, um, the Roman Stoic who, um, whose discourses I've, I've mentioned, um, and Epictetus sort of set up a school in the provinces after he was expelled from Rome late in the first century. Um, and Epictetus uh, has a series of passages in there where he says, look, um, we Stoics think that there are three parts of philosophy. There's logic, which concerns how you think. There's physics, which concerns how the world is. Uh, and there's ethics, which concerns how you relate to other people. Um, and in the passages that I'm mentioning, he says, okay, so there's theoretical physics, there's theoretical logic, and there's theoretical ethics. And that's what we say in the philosophical classroom um, when we, we study these things systematically. But there are disciplines associated with the physics, there are disciplines associated with logic. There are disciplines... Ascesis um, is, the, is the singular of the term. And there are disciplines associated with ethics. Um, and once you have this, and this um, Hutto is, is really the first to emphasise, once you, you read Epictetus and then Marcus Aurelius with this as a kind of interpretive key, you can see that there are ethical exercises, there are physical exercises, and there are... Um, logical exercises. Um, 
So an example of, of a logical exercise, um, the Stoic attitude is that the outside world does not determine what we think about the outside world. In between our reaction and the world is what we tell ourselves about what's going on. And that, that can be a screen um, or it can be a kind of um, distorted mirror. So Marcus says in some fragment, it has been said to you that somebody has said something bad about you behind your back. And he says to himself, well, okay, so what, 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 what do we know? And this is the exercise. We know that somebody has said something bad about you. Um, do we know that you have been harmed? Do we know that you should be upset? Do we know that you should go off the handle, lose your shit? Um, no, we don't know those things. All we know is that someone has said something intentionally harmful about you. As for the rest, that's, that's stuff you've added on. Um, if you say, and that harms me, that hurts me. Um, so this is a kind of, it's, it's logic but not in, in anything like the contemporary sense. It's, it's, it's more like a kind of constant examination of what comes from the world and what comes from us. So another fragment from Epictetus, he very famously says, it is not things that harm us, it is our judgments about things. Mm, interesting. So I say this to students, the good news in Stoicism is we have a good deal more control about how we experience the world than we think. We have a great fondness for imagining that we're determined by the outside world in ways that the Stoics tell us that we're not, for good or for bad. I'm having a bad day, I'm having a good day. Um, the bad news is the Stoics are a lot more responsible for our experience of the world um, because it's not sufficient any longer as a Stoic to say, well, you know, Joe Bloggs said this about me, so of course I'm angry, of course I'm upset. So I see actually the link here with psychoanalysis in the sense that it's a form almost of emotional or mind training to disabuse what, what would be basically false imputations that you're making yourself or to... to part what you're making from what is coming from within. Um, does it entail, like psychoanalysis, more than just yourself? Like, would there be kind of um, mentors helping people with these sorts of things? Or is it, you know, up to your own agency to undertake these sorts of things yourself? You would, in the context of a Stoic school, you would be um, in discussion with other students and you would have a mentor. Um, now, in settings in which schools didn't exist, so, for example, in the first century um, in Rome, we have letters from Seneca to his pupil, Lucilius, the famous moral letters. And what's clear is that these letters are part of a pedagogical relationship where Seneca, who is the more senior figure, is offering advice to, to his, his pupil sometimes on the basis of lost letters that Lucilius has evidently sent to Seneca, sometimes on the basis of conversations they seem to have had, um, which prompt a further letter. Um, so there's no question that you would have a mentor, or um, what Ilse Trohado, Pierre Hado's wife, um, who writes a, writes a very, very um, good book on Seneca, calls a spiritual director somebody who would be there to assist you um, uh, along the way. And in those letters, she argues, there's 124 of them, you get two dimensions unfolding. On the one hand, you get the cumulative unfolding of Stoic philosophical discourse from the more simple, shorter letters towards longer, more involved theoretical discussions in the later letters and she calls that the expansive dimension of the text and then there's a concentrative dimension of the text so throughout the process Seneca's constantly returning his student nevertheless to the basics so you're expanding your theoretical knowledge of the system but you're concentrating the kind of core in particular ethical um, teachings of, of, of the Stoics so you've got a, a movement of expansion and of concentration that's going on so learn new things, but don't forget what's essential. Um, like sort of some kind of a, I don't know, a jellyfish going outwards and going back inwards or something like that. 
Um, and that, of course, is not, you know, not really the way that we teach um, philosophy today, because that, that, that concentration dimension, and Seneca says this, is not necessarily testing your theoretical knowledge, it's testing your practical application of that knowledge. Um, it's, it's returning you to, to, to ask the hard questions. So as a Stoic, are you treating external things the way that you should treat external things as far as um, Stoics are concerned? Are you treating other people? Are you thinking about your place in the universe in, in the fundamentally right orientation according to the school? Or how, are, are you smuggling in um, other kinds of thinking which are, which are problematic? I suppose, Matthew, you've been talking about the kind of practices that you might do as a contemporary Stoic. And sort of wondering a bit about what Stoicism as a lived tradition in the 21st century might look like and what it might potentially entail. You've certainly mentioned that it does imply a commitment to a kind of theoretical or maybe metaphysical view about the nature of reality and maybe about the nature of who we are as people. So, for example, this idea of being able to be a reflecting mirror and to see what is distorted and what's not. That's saying something about human nature, isn't it? So I'm wondering if one wants to adopt Stoicism in the 21st century, does it entail very kind of particular commitments to views and disciplines, as is the case if you want to become a Buddhist or a yoga practitioner or something of that nature? Or is it actually much more open-ended? Well, it might, it might be worth sort of taking a step back and, and sort of um, giving listeners who aren't familiar with, um, with Stoicism um, something of the basic kind of theoretical core of, of the doctrine. Um, and you can do this uh, by looking at what's kind of a key Stoic distinction and it has a long history in the West of between what's in one's control and what's not. Stoicism is, is a philosophy that says that people spend a lot of time worrying about things that aren't in their control um, and thereby, with a finite amount of mental energy that we all have, we're in effect squandering um, that energy on things we can't change. So the key practical first Stoic distinction is between what's in your control and what's not. And the, the idea is that you should learn to direct your attention to what's in your control. And what's in your control? What you think, what you feel and what you do are all to varying degrees in your control. What other people say about you is not in your control. What happened last week is not in your control. What's going to happen next week is not fully in your control. Um, here and now, what is in your control is what you think, what you do, what you say, um, and with difficulty, <laughs> what you feel. Um, and it's like a the stoic wager is in a sense okay so let's imagine a world in which you ceased worrying about things you can't control and try to redirect your energies to things that you can and you made a thoroughgoing lucid assessment of your beliefs your actions and your feelings and you tried to root out those that are based on the false assumption that you can change what you can't change and that you can control what you can't control what would, the, what would your life then look like if you made that fundamental change of orientation? And it's not easy. It's not easy. So Epictetus is always banging on about habit, 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 um, as Aristotle had done. If it's, if, when feelings are involved, we're talking about deeply set patterns of cognitive processing, as we might say today, that have been reinforced since you are a kid over time. And to unwind that processing, um, for example, the almost instinctive response to being insulted might be to get angry or to seek revenge, the desire for revenge. For the Stoics, the desire for revenge is, at, at, a, at a core level, irrational and unlikely to make you happy. And in fact, almost certain, Seneca says, it's like an acid. Um, it fills a vessel and then it corrodes the sides. So... How do you get rid of it? Well, it's going to be, it's not going to be easy, you know, if you, if you, if you begin to, to take seriously, okay, I'm a stoic, I realise that, you know, if somebody else says something harmful about me, okay, let's, let's, let's reason through this as a stoic mind. Okay, what if what they're saying is true? Well, maybe I should change my conduct. If they've said something that's true, that, um, 
And what about all the other stuff that they don't see, which is even worse? Um, so Evictus in a couple of places sort of says, oh, look, so-and-so said this about me. And he's, not only is he right, but if he really knew all, all the bad stuff, he would have said a lot more. Um, and, okay, so if he's not right, why worry about it? A fool has said something false about you. Um, and, you know, it shouldn't make you angry. Um, but then you might think, but what other people will believe him. Well, then they're fools too, the Stoic might well say. Um... So the best to... revenge is not to become like the person who has harmed you. That's a that's a quote from from Marcus Aurelius. Um, Can I just clarify yeah, something? Yeah. Hmm. It seems like one thing you would certainly have to commit to, which I think is a wonderful thing to commit to, but it's a view that human nature is dispositional or habitual. I mean, you mentioned Aristotle, yeah, and it's very much in that kind of virtue tradition. Yep. Um, I suppose that's kind of just implicit in everything we've said, in that we are constantly changing and we're creatures of habit. And that is the view of human nature, principally. Is there anything else in addition to that, that um, maybe more on the level of what the mind is uh, or how the mind might function either rationally or irrationally, that we need to add to that um, kind of Aristotelian habitual view of the self? So we're in, we're in the, the Greek tradition which, which says that we are rational animals or animals with logos. And the Stoics take this in a particular direction. So the universe is governed by a Logos, capital L. The Christians weren't the first to use that notion. Um, it's a structuring, organising, active principle that shapes the universe. And the Stoic philosophy is that human beings are distinct within nature insofar as we have the capacity to use Logos, meaning speech or reason. And that each of us, in a sense, and this is a very strange idea, each of us has a portion of the divine principle within us. Um, it sounds extremely unusual, but we have the capacity through our thought to harmonise our logos with the world logos. Um, and oh, the goal of life is, in different definitions, harmony um, or harmony with nature, both human nature and wider nature. Um, and that harmony word is... A homo logos word. It's it's about making your logos the same. Um, so Epictetus says all sorts of things like Epictetus has given you a part of himself for about seventy years, and your job is to try to give it back to him in good condition. Mm. Um, the wider logos governs everything else. So why shouldn't you worry about, from a Stoic perspective, what other people are saying or doing? Because it's principally their responsibility what they're saying or doing. And at a, at a wider level, everything is, is co-determined by the larger logos. And who are you to call into question that larger logos? Well, you can, but the price is unhappiness. So unhappiness is, a form, is forms of disharmony between self and world. Um, so you can see there is an almost mystical dimension to, to Stoicism that's not really there in Aristotle. Mm. Um, I didn't know that. I actually almost thought they were more empiricist than that. Just um, without really reading too much about them, but it's not sounding that way at all. Uh, the, 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 there's an empiricist side to it insofar as we get our knowledge through experience and we, we construct knowledge on the basis of impressions and, and what we hear from our parents, from our society and so on and so forth. So epistemologically, um, they're very much um, empiricists of a kind. Um, metaphysically, as we might say... Um, there is this this other 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 side to it, um, which um, implies a larger set of commitments and, and a big debate at the moment amongst the the kind of online Stoic communities. Okay, so do we need the physics if we want to be Stoics and live like Stoics? And some people are saying, well, you've got to have the physics because all this stuff about logos and the world logos and harmonising your logos with the larger logos, unless you believe that stuff. <laughs> you can't be stoic. And then other people say, no, no, we can just use some of the practices. We can just use some of the practices. The practices don't necessarily hold up or fall down on the basis of um, the larger physics with all of its commitments. Universal. Similar debates are certainly taking place in Buddhism. So people want to adopt, say, mindfulness practices or other meditative techniques yep. without adopting all the soteriological and metaphysical stuff yep. that is central to what Buddhism is. Uh, maybe... One way to think about this is in terms of body, emotion, mind. Yep. Does uh, the Stoic view 
and I suppose practices which follow from that, tend to see the body almost in a dualistic or platonic way where things that arise through the body are contrary or not in harmony with what we're calling the logos. And that's part of what's being detached from worldly affairs and what people say um, sort of implies, you know. That there's, yeah, yeah. Are you following that there's a sort of a... Maybe at, something at different, to be at different times, the Stoics have been criticised. Um, for example, some of the Renaissance philosophers criticised the Stoics and they did so on the basis of the perception that they were um, dualists. Now, in fact, um, metaphysically, they were monists, um, unlike um, Platonic philosophy. And what I'm talking about here is the, the Platonists believe that there's a universe of disembodied ideas um, that we can commune with, particularly after we die. And the Stoics don't have that kind of um, idealistic metaphysics underlying what they're doing. So theoretically, they are committed to the idea that mind and body are, are part of the one system um, and that this is why you know you need to do activities that involve the body over and over again if you want to reshape, in a sense, the way you feel, the way you think, the way you act. Um, on the other hand, there are passages in particular in Epictetus where, and, and there's some that I know of in Seneca as well, where there's, there's a definite flirtation with, with what we might consider to be kind of more dualistic ideas, that the divine principle is very much located in the mind, whatever that is, um, and as for the body, it, it, it comes into being and it passes away, um, and it's not part of the, the main picture here. Um, now, I think it's clear that theoretically um, the, the Stoics weren't dualists, but I can see why there are, that has been one of the perceptions that have, has been passed down about their philosophy. You know, all the, way, all the time you're saying this, I'm thinking Spinoza, Spinoza, Spinoza. And it seems like there's a similar kind of thing going on, whereas with Spinoza, of course, I'm sorry to name drop people that may not know him, but talking about the uh, 17th century Dutch rationalist philosopher who was a monist in that everything is the one substance. I always find with Spinoza, he's sort of trying to say the body and the mind are both modifications of that one substance and therefore, you know, don't privilege one over the other, so to speak. But then really what he's saying is you have to cultivate the mind so that it's totally in tune with the rational and intuitive principle. So it's almost like there's a bit of a each-way bet, you know. So everything is is one substance, but the mind is the thing that's really going to free you up, yep. so to speak. Well, let me let me say a couple of things. The first is that Spinoza very very clearly, although it's not necessarily explicit in a lot of places in the Ethics, uh, was indebted to to the Stoic tradition. All right. Um, and. For, for that reason, it's not a coincidence that you're finding these parallels, and 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 there are people who who have definitely worked on this. Um, the second thing I'd say is that in Greek philosophy, more widely, I think there is a sense in which the mind has the capacity to take us out of the here and now in in, in a negative sense. So there might be a positive here and now, an enlightened way of looking at the here and now which is at the heart of particularly Stoicism and maybe Epicureanism as well. But there's also, the, if you like, let's call it the bad here and now. And that's the, caught up in habits, caught up in pleasures and pains, caught up in anxieties, caught up in worries, caught up in everyday life. And therefore kind of absorbed in today and the concerns of today and unable, in a sense, to see outside of your little sort of monad, your little world. Um, body is associated with the here and now in that bad way, I think, in a lot of Greek thought. I mean, it's, it's, the body responds, it can only respond to what happens to it here and now, like what you touch, what you feel, what you taste. Um, the five senses are attuned to the present environment where the mind allows you to abstract from, from that a little bit, um, up to and including a kind of stoic, mystical idea of harmonising your mind with the order of the cosmos or something like this. But even in a much more mundane sense, you know, I can be here but thinking about yesterday, I can be here but thinking about tomorrow, I can be here but studying abstract mathematics, I can be here but reading someone who died 4,000 years ago. Um, and so the mind has that 
what's sometimes they say to my students, it's like a superpower. You have a mm. superpower. It's your mind. It can take you away from where you are right now, and and it can open up this larger purview. And a key part of the ancient philosophies is getting the here and now in the light of the larger perspective. Um, and that's a key part of the, the Stoic practices. So one of the practices that Harlow talks a lot about is, and he finds it across different ancient traditions, is what he calls the view from above. And this is a thought exercise where you sort of say, okay, I'm here and now, I'm in this kind of postcode, I'm in this house, I'm right here. Um, but take a step upwards and backwards and kind of imagine yourself from, from a height and then go a little further up again and imagine yourself again. And pretty soon you won't be able to kind of make out your little part of the world at all. Um, you'll see hundreds of houses, hundreds of little worlds, thousands of people. Um, and there are different versions of this exercise which is about perspectivizing, re-perspectivizing your life. And in a sense, it's a way of breaking down that sense we have when we're caught up in emotions that this is important, this is imperative. Unless I do this, bad stuff's going to happen. And then you abstract out from that and you, you kind of get to a perspective where it's, well, actually, in the grand order of the cosmos, what I'm doing is not altogether that significant. It's only my particular unphilosophical perspective that has made it seem so dire. And I think the exercise is supposed to be liberating. People can find it pessimistic, you know, oh my gosh, I'm just a little ant. Um, but know. presumably it's sort of this journey from imminence to a more transcendental or transcendent viewpoint and then back to imminence, which that's right, yeah. transforms or reconfigures the way that imminence is actually unfolding. That's, that's, that's how I understand and that's the way I think Hado understands these practices. And for me, it, it's always made a lot of sense that this is a way of disenchanting the world, but in a positive sense. We often talk about disenchantment as though it's terrible. For the Stoics, our emotions enchant the world. And sometimes those enchantments are bad enchantments. Uh, and, and sometimes they need to be disenchanted. So Marcus uses an example. He says, you get some Falernian wine. Now, this was Falernian wine was a byword for it. Really expensive, beautiful wine in the Roman world. And Marcus says, okay, so my impression is that this is something fabulous, my first impression. Stand back, what is it? It's, it's, it's juice extracted from a grape. Um, and then he goes through very famously in his passage, he says, what sexual intercourse? You know, we get sort of think that that's um, terribly important. Well, it's, it's, it's the rubbing together of two bodies culminating in the excretion of bodily fluid, he says. Um, and this is a kind of disenchanting exercise and, and there are different versions of it which aren't quite so dramatic that's a famous one because it's so bracing and it kind of captures what's going on here and it's a way of standing back from the way that we respond for example to people in positions of authority we get tongue-tied around them we get nervous to say the right things or around attractive members of the opposite sex or something like this um, and the stoic position is that we kind of get enchanted by appearances um, and this can be very disenabling mm. and it's helpful from time to time to analyse things and to see what they're made up of, see where they come from. Another thing that Marcus says in, in terms of responding to insult, he says, imagine this person who's insulted you, imagine them at the dinner table, imagine at the, them in bed at night, imagine them going to the toilet. Um, Imagine the larger truth about this person who you've kind of turned into this, this, this beam with the power to, to negatively affect you. Again, people can find these exercises quite pessimistic. Um, I don't think you have to read them as pessimistic. They're just, they're philosophical in the older sense of look at things as they are rather than mm. as you imagine them to be and see if that's liberating. See if that's enabling. Seemingly saying something very powerful about ordinary human perception too, namely that it tends to reify. It tends towards actually making reality into something that it's not. And so there's almost a theory of ideology there too, isn't there? You could take it in a political direction. There's, um, there's no doubt there's a theory of human perception which suggests that very often we get things wrong and that our perceptions are structured by our beliefs and they, in turn they structure, they reflect back and there's an interaction between the two of them. 
and that often that interaction produces um, misperceptions of, of the way things actually are. I know there are parallels in Eastern traditions to this kind of idea, um, but it's it's there's a critique, I guess, of the imagination that's going on. You don't often find the Stoics talking in positive ways about mm. about the imagination because it's tends to be a faculty for adding stuff to the way things are, which they believe are tied to forms of avoidable um, angst, anxiety and suffering. So something bad happens to me, like, I don't know, I lose a loved one. I mean, this happened to, in a way, it happened to me last week. I lost my dog. Oh, I'm um, sorry to hear that. Yeah. Um, but I had actually been practising some stoic techniques and they seem to have worked I mean in the moment I was a mess um, but I sort of feel like you should be I mean if you've lived with another being for 15 mm. years and they've looked after you and you've looked after after them and it was, it was kind of nice to, to 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 be in that moment but the dog had been fading my dog had been fading for a time and I'd known really for 18 months that the time was going to come where I was going to have to as an act of mercy um, get the the vet involved and, and that'll happen last week um, so how do, you, how do you respond to that event I mean we have a tendency as you say to, to reify things and to kind of imagine that the things that we love are permanent and so there's fragments in Epictetus where he says you know okay so you've got a jug and your servant breaks a jug I had servants back then um, did you ever expect that the jug would last forever mm. Probably not, and that's probably why you don't get so upset. You know it's replaceable as well. Um, but why then with your child? Why then with your lover? Do you somehow imagine that they are fundamentally different in temporal terms from the dog? From, sorry, from, from the dog, from the, from the, from the jar? You, you know, you didn't give birth to an immortal. You didn't get lucky and kind of hook up with somebody who's going to live forever. Um, and somehow our emotions want to eternalise what we what we love and what we value. But from a Stoic perspective, as unromantic as it sounds, and some students find this really, again, pessimistic, it's you, you're falsely projecting onto reality what's not there. Mm. Sounds like the imagination, which maybe can be fueled by emotions or driven by emotions. There's a kind of there's a there's a, yeah there's an interplay between perception, imagination. Um, and, 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 and what was the thing that you just mentioned? <laughs> I've just gone like... I've forgotten too. But um, what I was trying to say was that that might be the thing which is contrary to... An emotion, that's the third one. Yeah. To, the, to the logos or to the part of the mind that can abstract from those things. So if we're sort of looking for something within that kind of stoic view which is contrary to yeah. that kind of harmonisation with the logos or however you want to cash it out. Yeah. Is it... Potentially, the imagination. At, at, at some level, the the Stoics believe that the emotions are based on false kind of modes of cognition, false false evaluations of things in the world. So their argument is that okay, if you look at what what unites all the emotions, it is the valorization, the evaluation of some external object, as imperative to either have or to avoid. Um, whether it's another person, whether it's a job application, whether it's a promotion, whether it's a nice house, whether it's a nice car. Um, the things that we get upset about are things. <laughs> um, but it's our judgments about them, as we've said. And it's in particular the sense that, okay, unless I have or avoid this, um, I, you know, I, 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 I'm gonna kinda go to, go to water here. Um, in other words, that thing is essential for my happiness. And the Stoic, position is that external things, even other people to some degree, um, cannot make you happy. It's, it's the way that you comport yourself, the way that you think about, the way you behave towards other things that is the key to happiness. Um, this is why they say virtue, roughly strength of character or excellence of character, is the only true good. It's the only thing that will never harm you. Um, other people can potentially harm me. Certainly things can be lost, broken, stolen, um, and therefore potentially harm you. The one thing that can't harm you um, is, is, is a strong character, a good character. Um, 
which is one of their famous paradoxes. Everything else is, they say, indifferent, um, which means it can be good for you, it can be bad for you. It depends, it all, the decisive thing is what you make of it. Um, and so again, there's that inversion of perspective. It's like we're conditioned to think, I need a nice house, I need a pretty girlfriend, I need uh, lots of money, good reputation, a job. Um, and unless I get those things, you know, I don't have a life, as we say. Um, and this, from the soap perspective, almost all of that is kind of false. Mm. Um, because what you got is, is an ideology which says everything you need to be happy is belongs to the set of things that you can't control. Um, and in all probability, what that's going to mean is that you're going to spend your life anxious and unhappy. Um, unless you become stoic and invert the perspective and say, if I get that stuff, that's preferable perhaps, but it's not worth staking my soul on, if you like. It's an interesting thing to adopt for an emperor, when you think about it that way. Because they're really, you know, at the seat of power. They've got everything at their command. And in a way, their view is saying, none of this is that relevant to what's really important. Yeah, and, and Seneca was the tutor to the Emperor Nero um, before Nero went very bad and ended up um, ultimately killing first his mother and then his tutor, namely Seneca himself. But Seneca was also a very wealthy man. Epictetus, by contrast, was a slave. Um, and the idea is not that as a Stoic you, you need to kind of not have any external goods. Um, it's, it's more how do you comport yourself to them. Mm. Um, so you can be a slave and you can be an emperor, and from a Stoic perspective it doesn't really matter. Um, in both, and this is where there's a difference between, say, the Stoics and the Aristotle, so it says you've got to have some external goods in there, you know, uh, otherwise you're not going to be a very happy kind of person. The Stoics are committed in principle to saying that you can be, you can be a slave and be happy. Mm. Um, the cynics are even more radical and they say you have to be, or more or less become a slave in order to become happy. They have a very strong, I mean, and there's a close relationship between the two schools. The cynics are kind of the radical wing of the Stoics and they say, well, if you're fully serious about this, get rid of your stuff. So they're kind of the, you know, the extreme ascetics of the ancient philosophical movement. Mm. Live in a barrel like Diogenes. Um, it's really true that external goods can't make you happy, so get rid of them. The Stoic's position is more moderate. It's it's true that external goods can't make you happy, but not not everyone's built like a Diogenes. Not everyone's going to be able to, to do that. Um, and what about political or civic or social obligation? So let's say you're not an emperor. Let's say you're, you're committed to Stoicism in some form here now in the 21st century where the politics is getting increasingly toxic and poisonous and you know, there's a lot of friend-enemy stuff flying around. Yeah, yeah. Does a Stoic look at that and say, I'm just going to detach from this? Or is there kind of a, an obligation to engage or to help, say, just ordinary folk disabuse themselves of false imputations, like to kind of extend that Stoic view yeah, into yeah. the political world? There are two handles that you can kind of grasp the Stoic system from. And we're talking largely, because I think it's a more accessible angle in some ways, of the kind of Epictetan angle it's about what you can control versus what you're not, and you should be indifferent to what you can't control. And that could lead to, and could justify, forms of political apathy or withdrawal. Um, and I think the philosophy is meant to give you, as a kind of backup position, the possibility that you can survive and be happy even in those circumstances. I don't think they're fully committed to the idea that you should be indifferent, um, if you like, or you shouldn't try to avoid, um, I don't know, avoid f and prevent, um, oppose forms of um, parochial, stupid, harmful um, politicking. The other side, the other handle, the Stoic position is is that they're very, they're, they're very strong cosmopolitans, and here again they share this with the cynics. So if you don't believe that external things, and that might include, for example, colour of skin or even religious conviction, are essential to what is a human being, then you can see how the position opens up onto a cosmopolitan perspective. Any being that has the logos um, is equally for... Um, the Stoics in possession of that divine spark, if you like. So the Stoics talk about circles of concern. There's yourself and, and, and your beliefs, desires, actions, and there's your family. 
um, and duties and obligations to your family and your um, your place within that. And then there's a larger circle, which is your community. And then the larger circle of all is the circle of all rational beings. And you do belong to that. Um, and the idea is that you should try to kind of extend your circle of concern outwards. Um, so they're cosmopolitans. Um, they'd be deeply, deeply opposed to forms of Populism that work by friending and enemying people, dividing everybody, um, because colour of skin, religious conviction from a stoic perspective is is not essential. It's contingent and it's not part of what's most important. Um, so it, it becomes a, a question of negotiating. Okay, what your obligations are and how do you relate those circles? Mm. What's my duty to my country versus? My duty to the wider community. I think the Stoic is committed. Um, I, I believe at least you can take this out of their system to to a position for which you know it's not my country right or wrong. Um, if your country is is behaving in a in an ugly and violent and harmful manner to other peoples, then then the Stoic I think and is is has has grounds within his theoretical understanding or her theoretical understanding to oppose that. But you know, it's 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 interesting. In the ancient world there were kind of left Stoics and right Stoics. Oh, right. So there were left Stoics associated with the famous land reforms in the Roman Republic in the second century, reforms which arguably would have prevented the rise of Caesar and therefore of the Imperium. Associated with the Gracchi brothers. Um, and these guys were based they, they saw the writing on the wall. They saw that the Roman economy was changing, um, it was urbanising, the people were being kicked off their rural properties, um, and the agrarian economy was being kind of industrialised on a, on a pre-modern scale. You had large-scale estates run by urban-based aristocrats and peopled by slaves um, who were out-competing small landholders and buying them up. And so you had the growth of an urban proletariat. Um, who are increasingly dependent on the city for not simply work but eventually grain, um, survival in other words, and who were increasingly able to be drawn into the kind of populism back then that someone like Caesar represented. Um, and so the Gracchi tried to intervene in the late, mid to late second century and say, oh, what, clearly what we need to do is we've got to prevent these processes because if we keep on going like this, it's going to end up in a, in a social revolution and, and something disastrous. And we, we need to redistribute land. <laughs> and you can imagine what the senatorial class thought about that. Mm. Um, both Gracchi ended up being assassinated. But associated with them was at least one Stoic philosopher um, by the name of Blossius. And, and he, he, his position was... Rational beings, preconditions of living a decent life include the ability to kind of support yourself and your family. If, if the state's not providing that, then the state needs to be changed. Wow. On the other hand, you had the more conservative state perspective, which is, um, you know, what you can't change, you shouldn't try to change, and you should accept everything. Mm. So it, it, was a, it was a debate within, not all Stoics were kind of Gracchians, but some weren't. Not all Stoics were senatorial conservatives, but some were. Mm, I could see how you could draw many different potential political positions out of that. And this is the old issue of how does a philosophy relate to, to politics? And most of the good philosophies, I think, are politically ambivalent insofar as you can take different perspectives from them. Mm. You, know, you, you know you've got a problem when you've got a philosophy that's rationalising a particular um, political position. And, uh, I, I, maybe that's one mark of a philosophy kind of going bad. I don't know. Um, it's very juicy terrain. I'm going to have to actually stop myself from going further into it. I probably should wrap it up. Um, there's lots of things I would have liked to ask you, but we don't have time for. Um, particularly, maybe I'll come back at some stage next year or the year after because there's this question of the relationship between ancient contemplative practices like Stoicism and also Platonism and Neoplatonism and even Aristotle with the monotheistic traditions and the way that played itself out. And that would be a long 
a long thing to get through. So we'll have to just bracket that uh, maybe for another time. Um, but for what we have covered, it has been really, truly fascinating, Matt, and uh, I do heartily appreciate your time. One thing I think uh, we should talk about is you're presenting a series of philosophical dialogues on Stoicism and on philosophy as a way of life up in the Dandenong Ranges uh, in the near future, in early January. Yeah, the idea is to run a little school over the summer. Um, it may or may not get up this year, depending on interest. Um, it may start next year. Um, but to, you know, to, to start talking about this philosophical material outside of the academy um, in connection with this larger thing that's going on in Melbourne and elsewhere where Stoicism is kind of re-emerging as something that people who aren't writing papers for academic journals are interested in because you know, they, 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 they find or, or hope that it can be um, something that speaks to their larger experience. So, I mean, the aim is either this summer or next summer, depending on the interest, to, to get something going which would, would centre, you know, just on, on, on probably some stuff from Seneca, I think, is what I would teach. But it would cover some of the ground that we've been covering today um, and would look at, you know, existential issues, anger, grief, um, old age, dying, transience um, and things like that. Things that people were concerned about who you know aren't concerned necessarily about where they're going to publish their next sort of journal, which is going to gratify the the metrics that increasingly govern our academic activity. <laughs> it's another story. Well, I, I do applaud you for doing that, for um, taking philosophy out of the academy and bringing it to the people. Hopefully, um, it's successful this year, but if not, then then next year. And again, I thank you very much for your time. It was a very fascinating discussion. Uh, stay tuned for more podcasts at aratehouse.com.au.